0: Y'all got to wait, let me get my breath back, because I stand over there every week, and I tell myself, okay, save your voice, you got to preach two services, don't sing. Just stand here and relax, and kind of, and then I'm like halfway through the worship set, I'm catterballing just as loud as I can go, and today was no different. Um, I, I want to say first thanks for our worship team. Uh, all of those that you saw up here this morning, those were all worship team folks, right? We had some youth band uh Sanctuary Worship Center Band and and Tech and everybody else, Uh, and we'd love to have them every week, but they serve in a lot of different places, so we can't put them up there every week or nothing would get done, or or a lot less would get done. So I appreciate them coming and and being up here for both services uh, to really help us uh, just celebrate what this day is. Now last week we talked about the triumphal entry. The last time that Jesus came into Jerusalem, this is uh, right after he had resurrected Lazarus. He had stood out in front of the tomb where his friend Lazarus had been for four days And he prayed an out loud, open prayer. And he even said in his prayer, Father, I'm not praying out loud so you can hear me. I'm praying out loud so they can hear me. And he prayed and he said, I want you to be glorified in this and glorify your son. Lazarus, come forth. And boom. And what we talked about last week was that that was like kicking over the ant bed in Jerusalem. Tensions in Jerusalem were already running pretty high. The Sanhedrin had been uh, getting more and more tired of this Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter's son, this a uh, man who was coming around telling him that he was the Messiah, and uh, he was doing all these works, and he was getting all these people following him, and he was getting a lot of, uh, like, crowdsourcing in our modern vernacular. He was getting a lot of people that were kind of fired up about him and talking about him. And so he raises Lazarus, and it's only about a two-mile trip, a pretty short walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. So word got there, and it's just like it just lit a fuse in a powder keg. It just went off. The Sanhedrin were like, that's it. He's done. we got we got to end this. The Jews were angry, the Romans were angry, and and those are two groups at that time that you really didn't want to be in the crossfire with. They were all tired of this Jesus. The, the Jews felt like he was trying to lead people away from Judaism, and, and I feel like I say this every week, but I'm going to say it again. That's not what they were doing. In their minds, the disciples, those who were followers of Jesus at this time, they did not see themselves as a departure from Judaism, but rather the next logical step of Judaism. Judaism is about worshiping God the Father, Yahweh, we're the sons and daughters of Abraham. We're following him, and we're looking for, waiting for our Messiah. And all the disciples said, we're like, okay, we've been waiting. To, it's him. Like that's, This is the guy we've been waiting for. So they weren't leaving Judaism. They were taking the next step. Here's the Messiah. We've been talking about him, looking for him, waiting for him. Here he is. Let's worship him. The Romans were just tired of having any kind of upheaval. If you wanted to continue to be a, 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 a branch manager for Rome, you need to keep everything quiet. Caesar would let you get away with a lot of stuff as long as nothing came across his desk about you, about your little area. So Pontius Pilate, that's one of the reasons you see him trying to just get out of the crossfire. Uh, he didn't want to deal with this guy because he knew that no matter what he did, if he killed him, it was going to cause problems. If he didn't kill him, the Jews were going to be mad at him, and some of that was going to get back to Caesar, and he would be in trouble. So, so it was like kicking over an ant bed when he comes in for the triumphal entry. Uh, Yosha Anna, remember uh, Hosanna! Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is really a, 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 a combination of two Hebrew words that say, "Please save us." So, so he came in, and it's like the roof just blew off of Jerusalem. And so, today I want to look at what it means for us ants. All right. So it kicked over the ant bed in Jerusalem. What does the resurrection mean for us ants? Much like the triumphal entry. The resurrection story is found, I mean, I would hope so. It's what the whole book's about. Uh, It's found in all four Gospels, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and then John 20 and 21, where we read from today. Uh, Through the death of Jesus, through his death, we are reconciled to God when we surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Now, I want to be clear. You're not reconciled to God just because Jesus died and rose. You are reconciled to God because Jesus died in your place If you accept Christ, if you accept that gift, if you surrender yourself to the lordship of Jesus, you say, Lord, your life, uh, my life is yours, do whatever you want to with it, it's not my decisions, it's yours, I want to follow you all the days of my life, then you are reconciled with God. Now, some of you have worked in accounting, or maybe you've owned a business, or, or even just balanced your checkbook, that's what you're doing when you're balancing a checkbook. When you're looking at a bank statement and you're looking at your checkbook, trying to make sure they don't have more goes outas than you have goes indas, and you're trying to make sure that everything evens up, you are reconciling a bank statement. You are reconciling your books. Jesus reconciled your debt that you owed that you couldn't pay. You are reconciled, you are made right. The the encyclopedia of the Bible puts it this way. Reconciliation is bringing again into unity, harmony, or agreement what has been alienated. And you may sit there and say, well, I haven't been alienated. I haven't done anything. False. Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? A piece of candy, a a, a pen from the bank. You took something that wasn't yours. You're a thief. You broke a commandment. Have you ever told somebody something that wasn't true? Some of y'all this morning might have told one. Does this dress make me look fat? (laughs) If you lived to see the church house today, you either were able to tell the truth or you maybe bent the truth a little bit for the sake of harmony. But when you do that, you are a liar and you've broken a commandment. Jesus said if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Now you're an adulterer. Jesus also said if you hate anybody that you've committed murder in your heart, now you're a murderer. So you're a lying, thieving, adultering murderer, and you think you're a good person, and you haven't done anything to deserve punishment. You see my point? So Jesus came, and he reconciled us with God. John Calvin describes reconciliation this way. He says it's peace between, uh, the, the peace between humanity and God that results from the expiation of religious sin and the propitiation of God's wrath. Now, expiation is simply making atonement. Uh, go all the way back to Leviticus 11, 17, and then, and then look in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, there, there's, a, there's a problem of sin, and it must be rectified with a, an atonement, the right kind of atonement. And so that's what uh, uh, expiation means. It's making atonement. Propitiation, we're going to talk about a little bit later. But Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says in verse 18, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, let me pause here for a minute. <clears throat> Some of you would hear that and say, well, we have the, re- the ministry of reconciliation. We should be telling everybody that it's going to be okay. No, we should be telling everyone that it's not going to be okay unless they get reconciled with God through Christ. We don't let people do whatever they want to do and affirm that because that would be the most hateful thing that you can do. If I know that you're about to drink poison and I tell you it's okay, man, bottoms up, I'm not showing you love. We show love by telling people this is what the Bible says is required. You have to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. He has made a way where there was no way. He has made it a people who were not a people, but you have to give your life to Him. You have to submit to His authority. Then in verse 19, Paul goes on to say that as in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed this message of reconciliation to us. It goes on to say that we're ambassadors for Christ. And it says in verse 21, which I talked about Friday night, one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become or put on the righteousness of God in Him. We don't have any righteousness. Listen, I am all slap out of righteousness. Isaiah, I believe it says, uh, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Menstrual rags, if you want to be technical about the, the definition of the Hebrew word. So our best effort is filthy. And we think we're going to get good enough to get to heaven. You're not. Let me save you some some frustration. It's like if I were to go to the master's today and tell everybody I'm going to shoot par, I could just save myself a lot of gas and a lot of embarrassment and just stay home. I'm not going to shoot par at the master's today. Not many people will. You think you're going to shoot par as living a sinless life, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to fail. That's why we need Jesus. In Romans 5, Paul says uh, in verse 8, God proved his love by sending his son, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 9 he says, since we've been declared righteous by his blood, we'll be saved through him, Jesus, from wrath. Why is there wrath? Because God is perfect and holy and righteous. And righteousness has to have wrath against unrighteousness. Holiness has wrath against unholiness. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin. There had to be a sacrifice. Again, go back to Leviticus. It's it's the way it's always been. It's the way God set it up. You sin, you sacrifice something. You sacrifice a spotless lamb. You sacrifice two turtle doves. You, You have all these different rules and rituals that you had to go through in Leviticus. Why? Because they did not have the Messiah. Without the Messiah, you have to do other stuff to show that you recognize how God's economy works and that you're submitted to God's authority. So when you sin, when I sin, there must be an atonement. There must be a making right. There must be a sacrifice. And blood is the requirement that God has put on an atoning sacrifice. The death of the spotless Lamb of God provided our reconciliation, but God didn't leave us there. He raised Jesus and thereby raises us from death. I don't want to panic anybody, but that's just my introduction. I still got three points. Y'all buckle down. So I want to show you three things the resurrection does for us. The, The reconciliation part is the death of Jesus, okay? Jesus died. He suffered and died on a cross so that we could be our debt. God, showing that he was pleased with the sacrifice that Jesus made, then raised Jesus from the dead. That is God's stamp of approval. You did well. You you lived a sinless life. You died a sacrificial death. You you followed everything you were supposed to do. And then his stamp provides our regeneration. I'm going to give you some big Bible words, but I'm going to try to coach you through them. I've got some definitions that I think will help. It provides our regeneration. According to the Baptist faith and message, regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. That sounds familiar, Jasmine. It's almost like there's a verse. That, oh yeah, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, new creature. The old has passed away. Look, all things have become new. There is a newness in my life, not because I'm a better person, but because I'm a different person. I'm not Kev 2.0. I'm a brand new creature. I have never existed before. When I knelt on the altar at Westside Baptist Church in Florella when I was 26 and said, "God, I want to, I, I want to get saved. I want to, I want you to forgive me. I can't fix what's wrong with me. If you'll take me and clean me, I'll do whatever you ask me to do." I was not. I didn't stand up feeling better about myself. I, I didn't stand up being a little bit better equipped to make better decisions. I stood up, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Changed into a new creation, and that's the only reason that any of y'all can stand me now. Some of y'all can stand me now. 1 Peter 1 3 puts it this way: God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the living because Christ lives. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, I'm gonna kind of paraphrase and skim here. What it tells us in that passage is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. Dead men tell no tales, right? That's what the pirates say. Let me tell you what else dead men don't do. They don't make good decisions. Dead men don't make positive choices. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ. Your goodness didn't do it. Your prayer didn't do it. Your walking the aisle, shaking the preacher's hand didn't do it. Your baptism didn't do it. It represented it. Your certificate, your membership, none of that stuff did it. It was God who did it through Christ. We were made alive with Him. Titus 3.5, He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We were washed in the regeneration given to us by the resurrection of Christ. And we were filled with the Holy Spirit so we could walk out that regeneration. If all I have is the regeneration, but I'm trusting my flesh to do the good works that I'm called to do, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you were saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's not of yourself, lest nobody can boast. And then it says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, and we have been set apart for us to do the good works that God has prepared for us ahead of time. You don't do good works to get to heaven. You are doing good works on your way to heaven because you understand what God has done for you. So not only does it provide our regeneration, but number two, His resurrection ensures our justification. Another big word, I know. Justification is God's gracious and full acquittal, according to the Baptist faith and message, God's gracious and full acquittal upon principles of His righteousness for all sinners who repent and believe in Christ. Pause. Not for all sinners, period. Don't miss that. For all sinners who repent and believe in Christ. If you've never repented of your sins, you're not covered in this deal we have through Christ. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you still live for yourself and you reject the Son of God, you are not going to get in on this deal. You are going to spend eternity in hell. Listen to me. When you ask God to keep his nose out of your life long enough, he'll give you what you ask for. But be careful. When you ask him to leave you alone, eventually he will. I'm thankful that he didn't leave me alone. All the times that I asked him to and all the times that I ran from him, I'm glad that he pursued me. He chased me down and he kept calling me to himself. It goes on to say that justification brings the believer into a relationship of peace and favor with God. Here's the easy way that I like to remember justification or I am justified. All right, That's one way to say it. I've received justification, therefore I am justified. Being justified means it's just as if I'd. See what we did there? Justified, move it apart, as if. Just, if, just as if I'd never sinned. So it's, it's just as if I had never done the things that I have done. God has forgiven me completely for the sins that I committed before I came to Christ. He is now actively justifying me today. The the things that I think or do that are unpleasing to him today, all I have to do is ask forgiveness, and they're covered. They're covered in the deal. It's in the fine print. You're you're covered. Even the sins that I have yet to commit, I mentioned this morning little Eliza's here, and and even she hasn't sinned yet. She's like two months old. I mean, she's thrown up and pooped a lot, but she hasn't (laughs) sinned. When she gets old enough, guess what she's going to do? She's going to sin. You don't have to teach little kids to lie. You have to teach little kids to be selfish and 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 to be uh, get angry and all that stuff. You don't have to. Why? Because they're made of flesh. They like us. They do bad things. So God has already offered forgiveness, so that when she gets old enough to recognize her need for a Savior, she can pray a prayer. She can ask Jesus to be her Lord to come into her life and to forgive her for her sins. And those are already forgiven. That's how big this forgiveness net is. I want you to hear me. If you're standing outside the forgiveness net, you're being a fool. You've been offered forgiveness. And you're going, Nah, I'll pass. I'll, just, I'll take my punishment. Why? It just doesn't make any sense to me. In Romans 4, it tells us about Abraham. And I'm going to read this out of the New Living. So if you're reading along with me, it may sound a little different. Romans 4, beginning in verse 22 from the New Living Translation. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. You see that? It didn't say Abraham was righteous. It didn't say because Abraham was so stinking incredible that God said, man, i got to have me some Abraham. Come on, man, be on my team. That's not what happened. It said because of his faith. Uh, The hall of fame of faith is Hebrews 11, and it says in there multiple times, by faith, Abraham. Verse 23, Romans 4, And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous. And then in 25, it says he, he was handed over to die, Jesus, because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God, to justify us, to make it just as if I'd never sinned. That's what God did through Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says if Christ has not been raised from the dead, that our faith is worthless. Why? Because we're still in our sins. If Jesus only died on the cross, but he didn't get resurrected, then we have no resurrection. We are still dead just like Jesus would be dead. On Friday night and Saturday, we could still be dead in our sins. But praise God! Sunday morning, he walked out of that tomb, and he lets you and I walk out of the tomb. He lets you and I walk in the newness of life. He lets you and I know what it's like to be forgiven, to be justified, to be regenerated. What are we waiting on? Why are we not enjoying this abundant life that we've been given? Why are we not living as if Christ was died yesterday, raised today, and is coming back tomorrow? We have to have that that that... Pursuit of Christ to be our, our first and foremost mission in life. Jonathan Edwards said, For if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection of God, or is God, declaring His satisfaction, He thereby declared that it was enough. Christ was thereby released from His work. Christ, as He was mediator, is therefore justified. Jesus was justified so that I can be justified. Justified. That's amazing that we, listen, it it would be amazing to me if God said, if you'll put your faith in my son, I will let you sleep on the outskirts of heaven. I won't send you to hell, but I'm not going to let you into my heaven, but you can sleep on on the dirt outside the gate. It's not what he did. Through Christ, we are made sons and daughters of God. Jesus is the first fruits from the grave. Through him, we obtain righteousness. So that we can be sons and daughters of God. We don't we don't sleep out in the the yard. We sleep in the Father's house. But only if we've given our lives to Christ. So the resurrection provides our regeneration, it ensures our justification. Number three, it demands our sanctification. Here's where the mud gets a little thick. The BFNM says that sanctification is the experience beginning in regeneration by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes and is enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in Him. Now let me bring that down to Kevin level, okay, which is a big drop. (laughs) From Baptist faith and message to me, huge, large, large drop. Here's how I would characterize sanctification. If you've been made right, then act right and stay right. If you've been made right, then act right and stay right. If you have really given your life to Christ, you have been made right. Remember? Justified. You've been regenerated, made a new creature. You've been justified. You've been set apart and made as if you've never sinned. God has, has, has granted you Uh, expiated to you the holiness, the righteousness of His Son because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So if you've been made right, then act right and stay right. You are responsible for living as right as you know how to live for as long as you live, while God continues to conform you into the image of His Son as He promises to do in Romans 8, 28. And as He is conforming you, as He is making you more like Jesus, you have to live by everything that you know how to do. Every right thing you know how to do, you got to do. Every wrong thing you know you're not supposed to do, you can't do. And we don't like that. If we're being honest, we don't like that. I, I don't like that I can't lose my cool and and just show my entire rear end when something doesn't go my way. I, I don't like that I can't fulfill the things that my flesh wants me to do. Let me tell you something. My, I, I say this all the time. My most challenging and difficult church member, I look at him every morning when I'm brushing my teeth or shaving. He is a pain in my neck. I can't get that joker to act right for, for, seems like, for two hours straight. If I could, come on, man, just give me 30 more minutes, we'll make two hours. That gummy thought something wrong, he did something wrong, he, he said something wrong, he just had a poor attitude. I struggle with him all the time. Why? Because my flesh is still alive and it's battling my spirit. I'm filled with the spirit, but my flesh is still there fighting against the spirit. The, the flesh wants what the flesh wants. And it's never in line with what the spirit wants. And so there's always this battle going on. Paul writes about it in Romans 6. He tells us how we're to live for Christ. Uh, Verse 6, he says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Everybody's a slave to somebody. You're either a slave to sin, which means you're a slave to your own flesh, or you're a slave to Christ, which means you're a son or a daughter of God, and it's going to be okay one day. Verse 8, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Let me tell you something. When he walked out of that grave, that guaranteed me that I will too one day. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm afraid that our problem is that, that we're dead to sin, but then we seem to get those paddles back out and shock ourselves back. I heard a guy say one time that the problem is not that we get baptized, it's that we keep, the, the old man stays in the grave. That you know, the, the baptismal waters represent the grave. We're buried with Christ by baptism into death and raised to walk in new life. It's what Paul says in Romans 6. What, what the problem is not that we symbolize it. The problem is we keep going back in there trying to drain the pool and pull the body out and resuscitate it. Let that dead body stay in there. You walk in the newness of life. Leave the dead, leave your flesh behind and walk in a new life. 1 John four ten. By the way, if you think we have a lot of scriptures in here today, you ought to be thankful. The scripture says it a lot better than I can. 1 John 4.10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word in the, in the Greek, atoning sacrifice, is helasmos, mos. and the literal translation of it is a big King James word, and I love this word, propitiation, propitiation. Here's what it means. It is both appeasing God's wrath and being reconciled to him. So what, what, what propitiation means is simply this. It paid a debt and it took a wrath. Not only did it pay my debt, I had a debt I couldn't owe. I left my wallet in the truck and my checkbooks and my pen won't write. I, I can't pay it. There's no way. I don't have enough money in everybody's bank account to pay for my sin, so I can't pay it. Jesus said, got you covered. And then to take my punishment means that I was due the beating and crucifixion that he got, and he stepped in and said, "No, no, no, Kevin, I got it for you. You, you just have a seat. I'm going to take this punishment for you." Now, let me let me try to contextualize that a little bit for us. He he paid my debt. Okay, what that's like is that's like I'm at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and I'm having the whatever the I've never been whatever the whatever the most expensive thing is on the menu. I go I don't even care what it is. You yeah, guys was wondering, what, what, what do you have? What, what's your most expensive thing? Whatever. All right, well, give me one of them. I actually make it two. I'm going to make April eat one too. And while we're sitting there eating, knowing we're going to have a bad time when the check comes, Kevin walks by and says, hey, brother, good to see you here. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of your check for you. And I get up, oh, you ain't taking my, oh, you ain't taking my check. We're going to fight. And I'm i like, I, I'm like, I know you ain't you ain't paying my bill for me. I will fight you before I let you pay my bill. By the way, Kevin, if you ever see me at Ruth Chris, I, I, look, I ain't preaching about it. I'm just saying, you know, it, sometimes in a sermon you find a spot where you might get a free steak. All right. <laughs> I'm kidding, kidding. But that would be ridiculous. Nobody in here, if, if you were at Ruth's Chris and you were eating a hundred and something dollar steak, nobody in here would, would not let somebody come and pay for it if they would pay for it, right? Hey, man, awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Wow, that's great. I'll get you back next time when I see you at Foo. <laughs> 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 hey, man, you got them five strips? I got you, dog. Come on. Woo, got that check. I'm going to pay that. All right, so that's what we would do. Now, take, take our wrath. He took our punishment. Uh, now, how many of y'all got paddlings when you were in school? No, none of y'all, right? Y'all ain't none of y'all a bunch of. Y'all don't know what it's like to be in the real world. Yeah, some of us got them. Listen, I don't know how I always ended up in the hallway. Steph, I, it must have been a fluke. Surely... And I had a principal in uh, K-8, through eight, Mr. Ziegler, gone on in now, great man, one of my dad's best friends, taught me a lot. One thing he taught me was that when he would, he would walk the halls and he had this paddle, he had it on a leather strap, and he would spin it, and it had holes in it, it would whistle like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I could, right now when I hear that, my backside hurts just a little bit. It's just a little, time, like just tensing up a little bit. Whoo! I can hear it in my sleep. And so he would come by, and he would look at me, and he'd just go, hand on the wall. He wouldn't even ask me. And I knew that if he whipped me there, he was gonna get to his office and call my daddy. And when I got home, I was gonna get more of the same, probably a little worse. So so imagine this. I'm standing there and he goes, hands on the wall, and I put my hands on the wall, and y'all can't tell it by looking at me, but I used to be like the legs on one of them cameras still. I was skinny. I have overcome it. <laughs> I have battled to the point that I you No. Know. So so He would hit me and lift me off the ground. And I'm standing there with my hands on the wall waiting to feel this terrible pain on my backside. And all of a sudden, what if I heard somebody come and say, no, 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 I'll take his his licks. There ain't a single, solitary, minuscule possibility that I would argue with anybody. You're being foolish. Have victory. And stop living like Jesus is a get-out-of-hell-free card. So, some of us some of us seem to think that we're just going right, to, I, I walked the aisle, I shook a preacher's hand, I said some words, I got baptized, I've got my get out of hell free card, and I'm going to live like the devil. I'm going to do whatever I want to do and I'm just going to be like, nope, I, you can't get me. That's not how that works. That's what this sanctification means. That's why it's so challenging. Sometimes in my life, my sanctification uh, looks like, peaks and valleys. It's not a nice, smooth gradient where I'm improving day to day. It's, I'm a little better, a little worse, a little better, a little worse. I think we got a video of my sanctification. So here God is pulling me out of the ditch. He restoreth my right back in the ditch. <laughs> and so God pulls me out of the ditch. And He gets me out. And he puts me back out. I go, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm, glory to His name. And I'm just having a great time. I'm coming to church a few weeks in a row, and then all of a sudden, right back in the ditch. And I I would be willing to bet that some of you are like me. Some of you struggle like that. Some of you, your sanctification is not a nice smooth trend. It's that sheep, that dumb sheep. You know why God calls us sheep? Because we're dumb. Because we run in a ditch. And he has to pull us out and we run back in the ditch. That's what sanctification is. It's running in the ditch less. Listen to me. Just because you ran back in the ditch doesn't mean that all is lost. It means you're human. It means you've got this same old Adam suit like I'm wearing. You can get over it. You can continue to ask the Lord, don't let me, at least don't let me run in the same section of the ditch. At least, at least let me get further down the gully before I run back in the ditch. We have, to, we have to understand that Jesus didn't save us from our sin so that we could run back into it. He saved us from our sin to deliver us to something better. He wants us. Better for you. He wants better than bar hopping. He wants better than one night stands. He wants better than watching porn. He wants better than getting drunk or getting high. He wants better than addiction to pills or alcohol. He wants you to be addicted to abundant living. Jesus didn't die on the cross and raise from the dead so that you could have eternal life in heaven only. He did it so you could have eternal life in heaven but abundant life between here and there. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Young people, that's what he's doing to you. All of this stuff on social media, all of these fake, phony people on Instasham and the Bird app and Facebag and TikTok, all those people, they make it look like they have everything going for them. They're They're liars. Look at how many suicides you've had from people who are YouTube stars or TikTok stars or have 5 million Instagram followers. Trust me when I tell you the number of followers you have is not important. Hitler had millions of followers. Jesus had 12. He came that you could have life and have it more abundantly. You can have abundant life, but you can't have abundant life living in sin. You can't. And I know people say, well, Jesus is love, and you should be more loving and just be accepting to everybody. If I knew that you were about to drink poison, and I told you just bottoms up, that's not love. It's not love to tell you that you can live any way you want to do. It's love to tell you that there are rules that we have to follow. If you're training for a 10K, and I tell you, man, it don't matter. You ain't got to run. Just stay home. Eat Cheez-Its and drink Coca-Cola on the couch. And just when the day comes for that 10K, you'll be fine. No, you'll be throwing up about 35 steps into it, mad at me that you wasted all that money on your 10K that you can't even run. I'd rather tell you the truth and let you be mad at me than not tell you the truth and let you die and go to hell without ever having an opportunity to repent of your sins. John 10, 18, just a little bit further in that same chapter, Jesus said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. Talking about his life. I have the right to uh, to lay it down, I have the right to take it back up again. I've received this command from my Father. So, so Jesus laid down his life for you. Later in Luke 9, 23, he says this. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So here's my question. So Jesus laid down his life for you. Why won't you take up your cross for him? I told you I was going to close with some historical evidence. I, I want you to hear me. I, I'm not trying to be offensive. I, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. It really isn't my. It used to be. That was my old nature, but it's really not my nature. But I want I, again. I just think I think you. I I think you deserve the truth. And so I, I don't want you to be hurt by this. But I want you to hear my heart. There, there are some who come to church twice a year. They come at Christmas and Easter. There's even a little cute term for it: priesters. They show up twice a year, Christmas and Easter. And, and look, if that's you. Thank you for coming here. I want you to hear me. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you being here. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just trying to tell you, you ain't fooling nobody. We're here. I'm here all the time. So maybe you're here, and and this is the second time you've been, and you're going to come back again at Christmas, maybe. Now now I've probably ruined that. But you're sitting here, and you're going, man, this stuff is great. This guy seems real excitable. He's kind of a redneck, but okay. But all this stuff is junk. That's not real. That's not real. It's a fairy tale. It's, it's You might as well believe in Thor and Zeus and people like that. It's just a joke. Well, I, I want to give you some historical evidence, some historical proofs, and I just want you to hear me out. I want you to uh, use the scientific method. Just be, be fair and listen to, listen to the points that I make and, and reason them out in your own mind, okay? Most scholars, almost all scholars, believe that the four Gospels were all written between 50 and 90 A.D., now, historically speaking, that is a snapshot as far as how fast after the life of Jesus they're written. So Jesus died in the mid-30s A.D., and the first gospel account is written some 15 years later. That's like that. There are historical things that are historical accounts that are written of people who have been dead for 500 years before anybody put pen to paper about it. So, so it's a very tangible, real, historical evidence that we have four Gospels written in such a short period after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're not just religious documents. They're also historical documents. The empty tomb was not denied at the time surrounding the event, even though a lie, according to Matthew 28, 11 through 15, a lie was propagated by the Sanhedrin. They told the guards to lie and say that they were paid off, that they, they, somebody came and stole the body. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Saying that he came and got the body and put it in a borrowed tomb would have been a ridiculous lie to tell at the time because it would have been easy to prove it wrong because Joseph was a very famous person. He was a very well-known person in this area. In the early first century, there were at least 50 cities with shrines built where the bones of a holy man were. Some holy man comes up and he does a bunch of stuff. He dies. They bury him. Wherever his bones are, they build a shrine. There is no such shrine for Jesus because there were no bones. There was no body. The testimony of women in the first century Jewish culture was considered worthless. So if it was a lie, it's a dumb lie to use women to be the first ones to find the body is gone. If you were going to tell a lie, you would tell a better lie. The disciples of Jesus were the only ones who had any vested interest in stealing the body to fake a resurrection. And to do that, they would have had to do it with the Jews and Romans all watching. The Jews and Romans, if you said the body was gone, I promise you there were Jews and Romans trying to find where you had hid it. Trying to go and ask everybody, did you see anything? Do you know anything? They were the only ones with a vested interest to take it. And there's no way they could have taken it. They couldn't have moved the stone. You're talking about 11 scared men hiding in an upper room with a bunch of other people. And you think they went out in the middle of the night, overcame two trained guards, rolled a huge two-ton, probably, stone out of the way, stole the body, and hid it where? Took it where? See, it's real it's real kitschy to say, oh, they stole the body. or right, what'd they do with it? Where'd it go? Jerusalem's not that big. Where'd they hide it? Somebody would have found it. Somebody would have known. There was a Roman historian named Tacitus who wrote in 115 A.D., reporting on Emperor Nero's decision to blame Christians for the burning of Rome. And this is what he said. Now listen, I didn't say a Jewish historian, a Christian historian. I'm talking about a Roman historian. Nothing to do with Christianity, doesn't believe it, doesn't like it. Here's what he wrote. Nero fastened the guilt, talking about for the, for the fire, on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, talking about Jesus Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, which is crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in Rome. So even a Roman historian recognized that this man lived, he was crucified, he died, and his followers kept his religion going. The twelve that remained after the resurrection of Jesus all died as martyrs. First, James uh, was beheaded in Acts 12, and the rest of them all the way except for John. They tried to martyr John. They put him in boiling oil, but they couldn't kill him. And so they put him on the Isle of Patmos as an exile, and he eventually, we think, died of old age. Now, do you really believe that 12 men would be martyred for something that they knew to be fake? Neil, if me and you and and 10 of our buddies had come up with a lie, and we were telling that lie everywhere, we might could stick together. Probably one of us would crack and, and break. But if they started killing us, I'm gonna be honest with you, if, if me and you and ten buddies had come up with a lie we were telling, and they killed you, and then they came to me and said, "Now we killed him because he wouldn't tell us the truth. Are you gonna tell us the truth? I would sing like the world's biggest canary. I would tell everything, I would tell stuff that I ain't even done yet. I would tell everything to keep from being martyred if it was a lie. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. By the way, this letter was written within 25 years of the resurrection. Paul writes these words, and I'm not going to read them for you, but he writes these words which were uh, echoing a, um, uh, a creed that had been going around the church since some, some believe as close as six years after the resurrection. They were saying this creed in their church services, and Paul records it in a letter to the Corinthians 25 years after the resurrection. And in that same part, he said, Jesus died, He rose, He appeared, to the disciples, he appeared to this one, to this one, even to five hundred, many of whom are still alive. He would not say that if it was a lie. Yeah, he rose, but everybody that saw him is dead. Sorry, I don't buy it. Finally, the, the, those who believe that the, the the slight differences in the gospels means that it was a fake—that's ridiculous. If it was going to be a lie, they would get all their facts straight, they would copy off each other's test, and it would say the exact same thing in the exact same order, right? Because we want to have four identical accounts so we can prove that this lie we're trying to propagate actually happened. The only way it makes any sense for it to be true is for there to be differences in the way they described it. Look, here's where it boils down. You you can try to deny it, you can dispel it, you can dismiss it, but eventually you're going to have to deal with it the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was a real person. He lived, he died, he rose. The opponents of Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years have proposed many arguments, but they've never produced a body. They've never been able to prove that he was not who he said he was. So I want to close with this. I have two simple questions They're simple in the way they're formed, but they're very challenging because here they are. Number one, what will you choose to believe about the resurrection? What will you choose to believe about the resurrection? Number two, what will you do with the resurrected Christ? See, you have to make a decision. When when I came to faith in Christ... The biggest thing that held me back was that I don't want everybody in the church to see me walking forward because they think I'm already saved. What a fool. I would have died and gone to hell in my sin because I was worried about what 50, 60 people thought about me. I had them convinced that I was so good. I was a good kid and I was a Christian. And if I walk down there and say that I need to repent of my sins and come to faith in Christ, they're going to know I was lying. Hey, listen to me. Let them know. Here's the real crux of it. Jesus already knows you're lying if you're lying. Why does it matter what everybody else thinks? His is the only opinion that's going to matter. What do you believe about the resurrection? What will you do with the risen Christ? Would you stand with me? Our worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song. And I know that everybody's got their Easter stuff on and we're going to Mama Nems or Granny Nems for lunch. But I want you to hear me. If you don't know Christ, don't you leave this place without Him. Don't you walk out of here today and think, I'm going to push it off. I'll do it next week, the week after. I'll do it some other time when it's more convenient. None of us are promised tomorrow. If you don't know Christ, I am begging you to come to faith in Christ today. I am pleading with you to turn your attention to the cross of Christ, to give your life to Him, to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, to, 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 to quit running, quit hiding, quit lying, and just give your life to Jesus. It's the best decision I ever made. I just wish I'd made it earlier. So I'm going to pray, just a short prayer. When I say, "Amen," if you know you need Jesus, please come talk to me. Please don't look around and worry about somebody else and what they're thinking. I promise you, you have a bunch of people here who would celebrate if you came to faith today. When the service is over, me and April will be up at the front door. If you don't feel comfortable coming up here, come and talk to us. Don't leave this place. Find a staff member. Find one of our Uh, deacons or elders or greeters and talk to them don't leave this place without knowing that your eternity is secure because you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ let's pray Father thank you for this day thank you for the power of your word the power of the resurrection the truth of who Jesus was and is and will be Father I pray that today if there's anybody here without Christ that they would stop playing games they would stop running and they would surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ be exalted in this place King Jesus Move in here, Father. Draw people to yourself and we'll give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.